Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we're going to be talking about principles of nutrient timing. And it's not your traditional approach of nutrient timing or post-workout carbohydrates. It's a little bit deeper. It's going to talk about circadian. It's going to talk about relative levels between cholesterol, blood glucose, insulin, talking about inflammation or, or our immune system. It's talking about things that are going to be relative, right? Not necessarily these universal things that are just not true without taking into consideration what our relative health is, which if you have at this point figured out, we are going to go there. Great topic. I highly recommend you get over to phpodcast.com, get on the curriculum, become a member. This is one you're going to definitely need the support on. You're going to have to go through the module. You're going to have to watch the corresponding videos and the resources, see the graphics, read the written, and then ask questions on the forum because it's just too deep, too complicated too complex of a topic to do without any kind of support. So get over to phpodcast.com, get on the curriculum, amongst all the other courses that we have on our curriculum. Training, movement, coaching, it is your one-stop shop. It's the most advanced strength conditioning platform on the market, bar none. Get on there, get access to this incredible curriculum to make yourself the best coach you can possibly be. So well, let's get over to phpodcast.com, get your copy of Strength Deficit. This is your go-to resource to leveraging eccentric versus concentric ratios. Really, really impressive, impressive book. Fired up on the response that I'm getting. Everyone's talking about how much value they're getting from it, but the really big take home is really technical, not much practical. That's why we created the Strength Deficit course, the Practical Guide to Strength Deficit, your companion. When you get the book, you read through it, you understand the background, physiology, biomechanics, all the underlying science. When you get the course, you understand how to apply it. They work really well hand in hand. So now you have the tools to understand it and the tools to implement it, which is equally as valuable. So get both. If you get the book, you'll get a discount code on the course. If you just want to get the course, completely understand, but no discount code comes with that without getting the book. All right, finally, realize.me. This is your command center for all health and wellness performance. This is what you're going to need to create experiments, dashboards, get labs, get discounts on supplements, communicate to your clients, do stuff for yourself, test your interventions the best way possible. Really good topic to talk about nutrient timing, right? Get your labs, labs done with realize we can start to see the impact from a blood glucose or insulin standpoint or inflammation standpoint or cholesterol standpoint when we make interventions when we start to include faster when we start to increase our nutrient timing awareness we start to eat seasonally we start to do anything what is the relative impact and how do we understand that at a higher level this is where realize will come in this is your go-to resource to making sure that the changes that you're making the interventions you're attempting are working or not and you can make more appropriate changes and more timely changes Realize.me, your command center for all health and wellness data. Without further ado, let's hit this principles on nutrient timing. Sit down, strap in, get your notebook out because I went super deep on this one and I know you're going to love it. All right, so let's get into this one. So this one's near and dear to my heart. Uh, For those folks that don't know much about me and my background, I have been responsible for nutrition pretty much everywhere I've ever worked between Georgia Tech, USC, and then Army West Point. I had a really good advantage of working with a guy named Will Greenberg at Army West Point who took the helm. Uh, So guided vision. He has since gone on to work at the Buffalo Bills, killing it with them, focusing on nutrition and strength conditioning. So uh, the folks that aren't aware, I have a pretty extensive background working with nutrition at a high level. So what that means for you is in terms of nutrient timing, it's going to come from two different focal points. It means that I'm going to get really deep in some of the physics, 
some of the physiology, and then it's going to get really practical with, man, that would not good working within a team setting or that athlete hated that concept. And I have some really good people on my resume I've worked with that is able to help a lot. So we'll go through all those experiences as well as getting really deep in the weeds. So for principles, one of the things that we wanted to get across was this concept of relativity, right? This idea that what is true on planet Earth in this gravity-based setting is same thing as what time is, relatively speaking, to where we're at in the universe. And time is not a fixed construct. It's different based off of where we're at relative to the sun. It's different based off of what we perceive it to be. There's a lot of like variables associated with that, like the speed of light is different than the speed of sound. So we can think about this concept of relativity very much in the same light as what we think about with nutrient timing. And I'm gonna go through what that means, but not all things are created equal, right? You'll hear a lot of different com commentary about these hard and fast rules about only have carbohydrates post-workout or only have carbohydrates at night for backloading or, oh, wow, maybe you should really focus on fat in the morning. You know, they're kind of general and they're kind of, they're kind of these things that really are parlayed as gospel, but they're not universally true. It's relative, right? For those three examples in itself, like if someone lacks insulin sensitivity, meaning that their HbA1c levels are above six, who cares about their post-workout carbohydrates? If they have cortisol dysregulation, that they have really low cortisol in the morning or high cortisol at night, high carbohydrates at night is probably not the best course. Or if you're just off on your cholesterol or off on your inflammation and you eat this high fat breakfast, probably not the best course because it's gonna make you feel lethargic and make you feel sluggish throughout the day. You know, these energy rich foods and we're timing them in a certain way. But I think that goes into the next kind of like, let's make this very distilled and simple. When we're talking about nutrient timing, we're pretty much just talking about carbohydrates and fat. That's it, right? In terms of nutrients that we need to focus on. Now, there is an element of the digestive rate of proteins looking at amino acids, peptides into complete proteins, and then breaking them down into actual foods to be digested and assimilated into our body. Yeah, you know, like there's gonna be some different rates of gastric emptying, right? So like an amino acid supplement's gonna empty faster than a steak with a certain amount of fat attached to it, right? Like there is some very obvious things that the gastric emptying and the bioavailability rate is going to be different based off its broken down form. But that's not really the point here. The point in terms of nutrient timing is to really leverage macronutrients into getting a specific hormonal output, right? This idea that I want to have carbohydrates at a certain time because I want to pull that lever of whatever hormone that produces, which, you know, spoiler, it's going to be insulin that the lower glycemic index, the less impact on insulin, the higher glycemic index, the more impact on insulin and whatever the downstream effects of that is, right? Faster glycogen repletion, 
better IGF-1 production and, re and receptor site sensitivity at the muscular tissue level, mTOR pathways stimulated faster, looking at AMPK pathways blunted, whatever, right? This idea that, okay, I just worked out, now I have this window to improve my sensitivity to certain certain uh, nutrients to improve whatever the value is from that. Or as we talked about before, of okay, well, if I'm gonna eat a lot of in, uh, foods that are gonna be insulin producing, you know, okay, well, I'm probably not gonna go through gluconeogenic pathways and burning calories. So I probably don't wanna have a lot of fat circulating. It's gonna slow down gastric emptying, it's gonna bring a lot of excess calories. And then I'm gonna have this problem with storage and I'm gonna have to put all this excess calories elsewhere. So if I'm gonna have a high carbohydrate, probably wanna have a low fat and all these things, right? And just distilling it down to when we're thinking about nutrient timing, it's pretty it's pretty much a three-prong approach. And we're gonna go through what all this means. But we're looking at it from protein, peptides, amino acids all day. If I'm working out, I want a more broken down form. So a protein detached from fat, which is gonna improve uh, gastric emptying. So like a whey protein, a, a plant-based one with pea, hemp, or rice-based, maybe a beef isolate. Either way, it's detached from fat. A broken down form into aminos. So combination of leucine, isoleucine, valine in terms of branch chain or essential amino acids. So all the essential amino acids that are gonna be available to keep that amino acid pool topped off. So we have these available amino acids and we know through training that leucine and glutamine are gonna be used more readily during exercise and that might stave off glycogen depletion, that might stave off ATP reproduction faster and improve recovery post, improve mTOR pathways post, like so leucine very highly correlated with mTOR pathways post-workout. Point being is we want protein all day. We want a steady drip of that. <clears throat> we want to think about having this IV drip if we're in a coma of just protein and amino acids circulating through our body. So we keep our amino acid pool, we have it available, we replenish, we work out, we have all these things available for amino acids. And going into a whole another concept of neurotransmitters, which is a, a an important conversation to have, but we got to think about amino acids are the precursors to pretty much all of our neurotransmitters, B vitamins, some more included in there, but looking at it from amino acids, so things like tyrosine and dopamine, we can look at, uh, we can look at theanine and serotonin, we can look at potentially uh, taurate or taurine with GABA, and you know, we could think about these things from the construct of if we have a neurotransmitters, even getting the point of norepinephrine, epinephrine, which is gonna come from this breakdown of dopamine to from L-dopa into this, like again, tyrosine, something like phenylalanine, these are things that are gonna be really important for neurotransmitters. So from an energy production standpoint, from a focus, from a stimulation standpoint, from a performance standpoint, from hey, getting ready to go to bed standpoint, certain amino acids throughout the day are going to have a little bit different. We could go into that to the nutrient timing, but I don't think that's necessarily what I want to go into with this whole principles of relativity. What I really want to lean in on is what we're going to get when we start to have fat versus carbohydrates. That when we start to have this output of fat and whatever the stimulating aspect of that from, from its impact on ghrelin and leptin and glucagon or when we go into the other level, looking at 
carbohydrates and its impact specifically on insulin and IGF-1 or insulin-like growth factor one, like we're gonna have some downstream effects. And when we're thinking about nutrient timing, when we're thinking about increasing of feedings, when we're thinking about peri-workout nutrition, we're thinking about AM versus PM, we're thinking about insulin sensitivity, we're thinking about anything, it's really gonna break down to what lever are we pulling? More fat, less carbohydrate, or more carbohydrate and less fat? That's really it. It's all based off what you can relatively handle and where you're at. You know, one of the things that Charles Pollock used to talk about was, if you're over 10% as a male, you're probably insulin resistant. The standards are really high. However, it, it, it does mean something though, right? So if I'm storing a lot of fat in my umbilical area, and we talked a lot about this within our last nutritional module, going through beta versus alpha site receptor sensitivity, and we're thinking about, okay, if I want to stimulate lipolysis on these subcutaneous fat cells with my umbilical or, or waist area, I need to have these things in place, right? I need to have good cortisol rhythm. I need to have good insulin sensitivity. I need to have, at the muscular level, I need to have a manageable catecholamine production, right? I'm utilizing epinephrine, norepinephrine, when I need it, why I need it to stimulate high performance outputs or engaging with high energy things, but not just having the steady slow drip, which is basically making me resistant to lipolysis and not utilizing fat as energy. And the funny thing about it is the less fat you have, probably the more prone you are to using fat as a fuel substrate, which is a whole nother conversation. But the really big thing is, is if you have a high body composition, high body fat percentage, you're probably more prone to not utilizing carbohydrates to its full value. That's an important concept to think about. And again, this goes back into the relativity standpoint, these hard and fast rules of like, oh, only have carbohydrates post-workout at night. That's, that's not true, that's not universal. That's true for some. It's actually really powerful. When you have someone who's sub 10 or even leaner, I mean, we're talking get into like the, the three to six range in terms of body composition. I mean, it is incredibly easy to add muscle. It really is. You just level, leverage the highest glycemic foods post-workout or in these big windows. Man, it is it is throwing gasoline on a fire to get a guy to put on muscle muscle mass. You know, having these foods that really break down, you know, like a, a very simple sugar, like or a four carbohydrate blend, like a quadricarb or a pentacarb. You know, you can look at you look at adding in foods that break down really quickly, like you know, cornflakes. It's a really processed, high sugar food. Um, you know, these things that are really potent, like maple syrup, ripened bananas. You know, you have this incredible ability to leverage mTOR pathways through insulin sensitivity and really getting IGF-1 to stimulate transcription and translation at the local muscular level to create new muscle or proteins. And all of a sudden that person is just flying, right? And they might feel lethargic or lightheaded or their blood sugar crashes. Like, yeah, that means they're pumping insulin and that insulin's pumping it into muscle cells and they are really, really humming. They're replenishing glycogen, right? They deplete glycogen rapidly and they replenish it really well. You know, versus that other person that's has a high circulating insulin all day. You know, that's where that HB1AC level comes in. And we talked about this with Dr. Laval's thing uh, on cracking the metabolic code. 
you know, your fasting blood glucose, you know, people are circulating 100, 100 milligrams per deciliter of fasting blood glucose all the time. People were walking around with seven plus HB1AC levels, man, like, or hemoglobin A1C percentage, which is your percentage of glycated hemoglobins, which is your kind of three to six, three to six month insulin levels. You know, when we look at like things like an oral glucose test, people are walking around with with less than 140 milligrams deciliter all the time, or above 440 milligrams of deciliter all the time. This is your insulin response to glucose. You know, like this is this is something that as we think about the majority of the people we see and work with, and put this in the context, they're super lean, they're super jacked, they're probably not paying for training. Just being real. They probably don't need you, right? They're probably pretty good and super easy when they are. So in terms of what you're thinking about, you're thinking about the other lever of low carbohydrate, higher fat, and we'll go through what that actually means, relatively speaking, and when to time that. But you're thinking about majority of the people are walking around with plus 100 milligram per deciliter of fasting blood glucose, 7% of HB1AC. 150 plus in terms of milligrams per deciliter or glucose tolerance. Like, you know, these folks are walking around with these incredibly high levels of glucose and insulin all the time. And when you're breaking them down, you're thinking about, okay, nutrient timing, one-on-one, post-workout carbohydrates, pre-workout carbohydrates, making sure it's high glycemic post and make sure it's a little bit more of a starch or it's a little slower burn. like. That could be completely pointless. That could be actually counterproductive. So we're thinking about this idea of, well, what is it relative to? Again, like time is relative to where we are in space. Nutrient timing is relative to what? Relative to our body composition, relative to our glucose and insulin levels, relative to our our function, our status. We are the product of what we repeatedly do, right? Specificity. So if we overeat, we eat these salty, savory, sweet, energy-rich foods all the time. We start to overproduce certain anabolic hormones like insulin and IGF-1 all the time. We probably don't need a whole lot of that. We probably don't need to go back and tap into this thing, right? And even to the point of meal frequency, when we're thinking about, okay, like we can improve thermogenesis, which is such a small, small aspect of caloric expenditure throughout the day. But let's just say the thermogenesis of eating food is increased when we increase our meal frequency, right? So we bump up from two meals a day to six meals a day. Office pretends that we're going to increase our thermogenesis from our food, right? This non-exercise energy expenditure from breaking down foods. And the thermic effect of feeding from proteins is more than any other ones, right? It's just a bigger one. It's a bigger thing to break down, and it's a lot more a lot more heat expended when we break down proteins. But that's such a small net. It's not that much. And the expense of what? The cost of what? Increasing our calories, increasing our frequency of high carbohydrate, energy rich foods that's going to release more insulin more frequently. Versus, okay, like maybe we need to take on this fast and mimicking approach of increasing our fat. And that's the thing behind fat. It's fast and mimicking, right? It's Fasting is essentially the presence of glucose or not. That's it, right? It's not not eating. Fasting is restricting glucose in whatever way, shape, or form. And it could come in the form of restricting eating, 
right? It could, hey, I'm not going to eat for, for 12 hours, 24 hours, 48, 72, 96. It could be that. Or it could be increasing your fat. Ketogenic diets are fasting mimicking diets. We detach, we de- de- deprive the body of glucose and it's forced to form ketones to produce energy. And this is not performance right now. This isn't thinking from that lens. Like, I don't think we have to attach fasting with performance, right? Like the autophagy or the potential mTOR pathways or the AMPK pathways or all the other pathways associated with, with fasting from the lens of like the person's overeating, they're overconsuming, they're sedentary, blah, blah, blah. They get this rebound effect from just being in a healthier state from producing ketones and not just be constantly in this glucose glucose processing, right? And this burden on the liver from having so much fructose in it and this burden on the pancreas from having to produce so much insulin. It's not that. It's not, that's not performance. That's health. That is saying this person's been in this overly consumed state for a long time. And I want you to think about what we talked about with Mark Fitzgerald and duality. That there's always a balance to the universe here. That if we think about we've done this overeating, low exercise expenditure, high insulin, high glucose, cortisol dysrhythm, we're going to struggle when we adopt this traditional nutrient timing approach. But I'm not even going to get I'm not even going to get too deep into that because I think there's a bigger play here. There's a bigger conversation. There's a there's a better narrative, it's simpler. It's looking at circadian rhythm. It's looking at circadian biology. And if the folks that know me know, this is a huge thing for me. And I think a lot about how do I make change with people? How do I make sustainable change? The first is get their trust and do something that we should all agree upon, right? Very simple, drink more water, eat more vegetables, sleep more, be more mindful of eating. Sleep is the one of those four that is so hard to tackle. It's so hard because it's invasive to their life. It's invasive to their schedule. It's invasive to the things that they have to account for. I go to bed, I lie down, I constantly can't help but think. We could argue there's, you know, the, if you ever watch, if you ever watch uh, Yellowstone, there was a great line from John Dutton. He talked about guy next to him snoring. He's like, if you can't sleep with a man snoring next to you, you got to work harder tomorrow. That, that, it's pretty poetic if you think about it, but the same thing about a restless mind is probably someone who's not doing or saying the things they need to say throughout the day. They're coming, they're going to bed with a lot of baggage. Psychology aside, there's a, a more simpler thing to think about. What is your light exposure? What is your exposure to light throughout the day and how does that impact your circadian and how does that impact your hormonal profile, right? So if we go to the module, you'll see this basically graph of, you know, cortisol rhythm, right? And normal cortisol rhythm, you know, peaks in the morning around, you know, eight or nine o'clock. Sun starts to start to rise chronically. And then we, sun reaches its peak around 12 noonish, depending on the time of year. Another big thing we need to talk about down the road is hashtag stop the clock. Let's get rid of this daylight savings. Don't need to do it anymore. We don't have an agricultural based society, so we can stop that and stop screwing people's circadian. But another point though, it's cortisol also start to start dropping around midday. And then we should start to see a concurrent rise in melatonin. 
we should start to see melatonin start to rise around this seven to nine slot, right? Just like cortisol rises seven to nine in the morning, right? And it's, you're thinking about it, the sun's coming up, the sun's going down. It's the, it's the dawn of a new day, it's the end of a day. Question would be is, what is your light exposure at these times, right? So we should start to get early morning sunlight with cortisol starting to climb, right? And what this does is improves our, it, we start to receive this with our, our melanin in our skin. <clears throat> our rods or codes start to perceive these different light spectrums, right? Sunlight's really good because it has all the spectrums between red, blue, green, orange, and it has our ability to start to produce these natural hormones like, like cortisol that helps us procure energy and goes through these gluconeogenic pathways because we are technically in a fasted state and then we can start to utilize energy stores within our body unless we have high circulating levels of insulin. Okay, well, that's maybe a reason why we should start to think about a high-fat breakfast. Not bad, because when we have insulin, we have low cortisol. Or cortisol and insulin working together, not a good thing. I shouldn't say that they have low cortisol because we can have high cortisol and high insulin. But if we have high cortisol, high insulin, means we are trying to produce a lot of in energy and we already have a lot of energy. So in this energy surplus state, we're gonna really struggle to metabolize all of that excess energy and it's gonna be probably stored somewhere, specifically fat tissue. Fat's always ready for more. Fat's always sensitive. Question is, if muscles is sensitive to insulin, it's probably gonna be predominantly using that because your body perceives that your muscles need that energy more so because that's how we move, that's how we function. But if we perceive that muscle doesn't need the energy, we means we're in a state of excess and it goes into storage mode. And that's when it goes into this alpha sense to alpha site sensitivity at the local muscular or the local fat adipose level, and we start to store that. And then we start to go throughout the day, sun reaches its peak midday. There might be a play here that should be our highest carbohydrate play. A good friend of mine, Rob Jacobs, talks a lot about this extensively and looking at every time we eat energy-rich foods with lots of photons, it emits light and the cells within our body perceive that light. We wanna have as much light internally as we do externally. It's the easiest way I can break it down. It goes into concepts from Joe Pollock, Sasha Pandan. I put a video for Sasha Pandan on this web, on this modules to kind of dive into this. I'll put one on Joe Pollock and the practical aspect. Um, even Gilbert Lang looking at this idea of our cell wall is basically this zero charge that's responding to different parts of the day and depending on light spectrums, depending on photons, depending on hydrogens, depending on electrons and protons around that actual cell, that we're gonna have different functions and different, different metabolisms and different overall avenues. And it goes a lot, Rob will go a lot into this concept of deuterium and this kind of like charged water that is really hard for overall acidity and metabolism. And we wanna time that, right? So we start to produce more hydrogens through exercise or just moving. Um, just breaking down food substrates. That's why fasting and cold thermogenesis is really good because it helps us helps us go through those pathways between the Krebs cycle, electron transport chain, and then going through this end cycle of the electron spin at the end of electron transport. And, and we can start to see if we're producing ATP or we're going to start to produce you know, excess hydrogen ions and we're going to start to pump that into the cytosol and that what's create deuterium and then we start to look at 
all of a sudden the function of our cell deteriorates and our mitochondria starts to get worse. And Rob talks about this a lot at our muscle mentorship is, you know, we want our mitochondria to fuse, not split or fission. More broken up mitochondria means more, more inefficient mitochondria and it doesn't help us. You know, we want our mitochondria to come together and become more robust and more capable. And that comes from just having better relationship with light, better relationship with hydrogens and hydrogens or electrons and, and protons within our cell and managing all this. But for you, the user, the person who's trying to process this and understand this and say, okay, what does that have to do with, with nutrient timing? It's, we should time our food with the circadian over before we start to think about what we time it with our workout schedule. Because I'll tell you this, and I'll say this here in a very, hopefully, easy to understand way. Because if they're overweight, if they're obese, if they have a high body fat, that nutrient timing in terms of carbohydrates, peri-workout or at night is not effective. You're not going to get what you want out of that. It's not going to be net positive. Versus nutrient timing based off the circadian, and you're thinking about summer, warmer months have more sunlight, so you maybe have the opportunity to eat more carbohydrates throughout the day or more energy yielding foods because you have to go out your, from an evolutionary standpoint, that's the time you start to build up your energy stores and in the winter you start to sit down and become more sedentary and spend less energy and have less sunlight. And you think about it from the circadian, I have high cortisol in the morning, I want low insulin. So maybe I don't need a high carbohydrate breakfast. And we see this quite a bit with anyone who goes to school after they eat a high carbohydrate breakfast. Blood sugar drops, energy drops, focus drops, etc. But then we start to see midday where we, and hopefully a lot of us don't, a lot of us don't have the ability to work out midday, but that's probably what we hear from most of the experts and when we should be working out is also the time we should start to think about getting our most carbohydrates in because that's the highest peak of light. That's the part of, probably the time of the day where we can most readily accept it because cortisol is starting to go down. We have, we have better function at a cellular level to break down that high energy yielding food or high, high electron producing food. We start to think about it from the level of probably should be most active at that time of the day. You know, when sun's most most available, I need to go out there and find most energy from an evolutionary perspective. So I need to burn as much energy now in a, a modern world. And then as the sun starts to go down, we start to increase our, produ our production of melatonin. We start to decrease our production of cortisol, barring if I have a lot of exposure to blue light. Blue light is really important to know because what blue light is, is a really high spectrum light. And when we see a lot of blue light, we don't produce melatonin because your body perceives it's still light out and doesn't want you to stop trying to go out there and finding energy to survive another day. So it says, well, let's keep you alert. Let's keep you ready. And it goes into that restless sleep. I can't sleep at that time because I'm super restless. Well, you're exposing yourself to a lot of blue, a lot of brain stimulating things, a lot of dopamine producing things. And it goes again into do if we have a lot of tyrosine and phenylalanine or diet, if we're craving a lot of certain types of protein, probably means that we're trying to get a lot of dopamine. And if we don't have those precursors, then it goes through these pathways of producing epinephrine or norepinephrine and high cortisol at night. And then all of a sudden we're really energetic, we're really restless, we can't stop thinking. All from probably just have too much exposure to blue light through screens, tablets, and monitors, and we're going to struggle 
to adapt to that. So it's a case there to go, okay, potentially I don't want a lot of high energy yielding foods there. And if you ever read anything from a concept of carb backloading, um, a couple authors have really kind of worked with this. If you go through the history of carb backloading, it really stems from Mauro Pasquale and his concept of the anabolic diet, which is basically doing a fasting mimicking diet, so protein and fat all throughout the week, and then doing carbohydrates on the weekend, just what I think he's literally the originator of the idea of cheat meals. It was taken by a guy by the name of Dane... Oh my goodness. Uh, he wrote this book called Body Opus, which I highly recommend you don't read. But either way, he started looking at it from a more individual day-to-day -day type of thing. So training days, having carbohydrates at night. Then took by Lyle McDonald, who wrote the um, Ultimate Diet 1.0, 2.0. And took a little bit step further of tying into some you know other things like pharmaceuticals and whatnot and talking about nutrient timing a little bit more in depth and then another guy by the name of dh Kiefer talked about it from just backloading at night or he had another one called carb night but just basically having carbs one night a week if you're uh and but again i mean it's just looking at it from replenishing glycogen getting resynthesis of all these things blah 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 yada 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 now from a more fundamental true standpoint it's it's light out, you want to eat your carbohydrate, energy, and the foods because it's probably going to be the best chance to do that, barring you're insulin resistant or sensitive, right? So if they're insulin resistant, kind of the point is mute again. Like, I mean, that's a relative term. Maybe having some starchy carbohydrates, some lower glycemic carbohydrates, the higher fiber density, I can get behind that. If you want to take someone that's really insulin sensitive and increase their carbohydrates, specifically higher glycemic, and getting some stuff around that midday training session, okay, again, I can get behind that. If they have to train it in the morning or at night, if you were to tell me, I don't think it's a great idea to give them a lot of carbohydrates around that, or maybe a non-insulin carbohydrate like you can, okay, I can get with that. But again, the thing I really want to talk about with all this is, is what is what is the, the point of nutrient timing unless we're talking about it relative to something? That if we look at the management of energy, the management of, of certain hormones, whether it's glucagon from fat or whether it's insulin from carbohydrates, it's all relative to what their baseline levels is, you know? And even like this idea of high fat breakfast, right? And Dr. Laval talked about this within Kraken Metabolic Code as well. You know, the relative benefit from a high fat diet is a lot contingent upon what the cholesterol levels are, right? So if someone's walking around with high triglycerides, you know, above 100 milligrams per deciliter, if someone's walking around with high total cholesterol, above 200 milligrams per deciliter, if someone's walking around with, you know, high LDL, like 80 milligrams per deciliter and above, like, okay, well, that's a problem. If someone's walking around with low HDL or AKA the, the, uh, of the good cholesterol, like under 40, right? Like, do we really want to have a lot of saturated fat all throughout the day? You know, there's going to be chiroproduction there too, right? And we see that a lot, like this more ketogenic approach that <clears throat> one of the things that's so valuable about cholesterol is its production of hor anabolic hormones like DHEA and then going into testosterone. And low cholesterol is as much of a problem as high cholesterol. 
But the other issue is if we have cortisol dysregulation, cortisol and testosterone are going to be a lot of times inverted, right? So if we have low cortisol, in theory, we should start to produce more high, more testosterone, which is why we should see testosterone go up at night, which is another big reason why we need a timer melatonin. Also goes into leptin. If we have leptin resistance, our body doesn't perceive our body as being full, full and we stop producing leptin and we stop producing these anabolic hormones to help us recover and replenish. But aside from that, if I have poor cortisol rhythm, like meaning it's high at, high at night and I can't produce testosterone the way I want, I can't produce growth hormone the way I want, and I have high cholesterol, I'm not going to use that cholesterol to produce hormones the way I want to. I'm not going to create this, this setup to leverage the value of that cholesterol to produce testosterone or anabolic or androgenic hormones. So then we need to appreciate that. We need to understand that. The other one too is looking at the digestion of certain proteins that we need to have a reference point for how we're using these proteins relative to our immune system. So if I'm overly immune, if I have a high total white blood cell count, neutrophil, lymphocytes, monocytes, isophilinols, basophils, and I have all the metrics on there and you go to crack and metabolic code if you want all those numbers, that having a high protein diet is not a great thing. We're just becoming overly inflamed that we're now creating aller, alert, allergenic response to it. And this is why like something like overly consuming proteins devoid from fat, like whey protein, lean chicken breast, egg whites, becomes problematic over time. That we start to create this allergenic response to specifically these proteins that are attached from fat that we overeat. And we start to see that manifest with high, specifically monocytes, isophilinols, and basophils, right? And we look at that from a percentage, but when that percentage point goes above 20 total percent, meaning that my monocytes are above 10%, my isophilinols are above 6%, and then my basophils are above 4%, that becomes a problem. And that means that we are creating some sort of allergenic response to the foods that we're eating on a recurring basis. That's not good. So the idea that, hey, we need to eat protein all day, that comes at caveat too. It's a relative statement. It's relative to the fats that we're eating, slow down gastric emptying. It's relative to the quality of the proteins we're eating. It's relative to the broken down nature of that. So everything has this relative aspect that you really need to appreciate. Big take home from this. What I want you to think about, and I want you to go to the module and watch the Sasha Panda video. I want you to go through this. I want you to look at circadian rhythm, the whole thing. It's thinking about it less from these hard and fast rules of carbohydrates post-workout, carbohydrates at night, and more along the lines of what is the body fat level, what is the cortisol rhythm, what is the testosterone rhythm, what is the cholesterol, what is the, what is the inflammation or immune marker level, and thinking about a, a bigger overall, more universal truth. If, we have folks that are eating more energy-rich foods when we are supposed to be expending more energy, and the caveat is expend more energy, that's probably a better hard and fast rule. If I'm eating less energy-rich foods, meaning carbohydrates specifically, I'm high-yielding high energy-rich foods, in parts of the year or parts of the day with less sunlight or less exposure to light, then I'm probably in a good spot there and then we start to reach these performance uh, thresholds of increasing your body composition to being sub 10% for a male. 
Then I can start to think about leveraging a little bit of higher glycemic carbohydrates like maple syrup and ripened bananas and specific single single source mono, or monosaccharides that are going to create a huge insulinic response and create a really robust robust outcome for performance. But those are the things that I want you to really think about. Like nutrient timing is not this universally accepted thing that we should just go, oh, yeah, okay, just only have a post-workout or have it at night. Like, it's not true. And some people might work with. And the other part, it really works well when you're on a shit ton of anabolic steroids. Let's just say it. Everything works when you're on that. So what's the point? Do you need to take anabolic steroids, be, get the benefit, or can you find a better, more a more productive way to leveraging nutrients at specific times and going off for more fundamental truth and using the Oakham's razors approach of saying it's pretty logical that summer months with longer daytime and higher sun, higher amounts of sun exposure, I probably need more energy yielding foods, procure energy winter months with less sunlight, probably need less energy rich and yielding foods. So maybe I need to eat higher fat in the winter and maybe I need to heat higher carbohydrate in the summer maybe i need to time it relatively speaking to the time of day uh, maybe i need to time it to what i'm doing from an activity standpoint relative to my body composition we'll talk a little bit about more about that in the practical section next week you know we got a lot of things to consider here a lot of things to break down but I, what i want is a more fundamental more universal concept to talk about with nutrient timing and not just say these blanket statements of post-workout or at night because it's not true it's not absolute so take your time with this one break it down get on the module phpodcast.com ph curriculum nutrient timing under the nutritional course trust me you're going to need all the support you can on this one because i'm not going to back down and i'm going to push you guys to make sure that you're getting the most from the subject matter but without further ado let's take a break here let's get ready for practical next week sit down with this get on the module go through the resources because you're it's just such a heavy topic to think about all right guys appreciate you